Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 1. Uh, It will be up on the screen. Now, we are still technically in our study of 2 Samuel this morning, but I'm not going to read from 2 Samuel. Instead, I've decided to preach from the first part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. I'm doing this because um, we are between two very difficult stories in Samuel. Let me first say thank you to Blake Shaw. He's not here this morning, but um, he did an excellent job preaching last week. So I always appreciate him stepping up to do that. But uh, in Samuel, the week before last, we are now between two stories and both of these stories describe episodes involving the exploitation and abuse of women. Bathsheba by David and Tamar by Amnon. And if you only have those two stories, you might conclude that the Bible just doesn't assign a very high value to women. You'd be wrong, but I decided that it would be good to get ahead of that assumption and equip us as a church to answer those questions because we live in a day and an age in which um, the value of men respective to women is in question. And so I, I want to focus in on this. And there's no, it, this is no small thing to me, okay? This is not me taking a pause to talk about culture. This is very biblical, And I want to be absolutely clear about how the God of the Bible sees women. I want to provide an opportunity for us to see that and repent this morning, myself included, of the way in which the world devalues women. And so I'm pausing for that purpose and we're going to look together at Matthew chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, it says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And then Matthew lists all the generations between David and Joseph. We're going to skip to verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. I want to pause here and pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Simply ask that you would teach us by your spirit why these names were included 
and what you intend for us to learn about yourself. I pray that I would be faithful to the scriptures in my teaching. I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts to humble us and to lead us to repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is how the Gospel of Matthew begins. And you need to know that this Gospel was probably written to convince Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah. It is the most Jewish of the Gospels. And they were probably Matthew's target audience as he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But from a Jewish perspective, it makes absolutely no sense to include women in the family tree of Jesus. The Jews did not trace their lineage by women, but by men. The only woman that makes sense in this list is probably Mary because of the circumstances of Jesus' birth. But Matthew lists four other women that he could have easily left out. And you have to understand, these women didn't really matter in terms of proving the royal lineage of Jesus or his connection to Abraham, both of which were very important for Jesus to, to prove. In fact, from a Jewish perspective, the four women included by Matthew, all four of them have questionable backstories, which we're going to consider. Also striking is that Matthew leaves out the names of more celebrated women in Jewish history. Women like Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Instead, Matthew seems to be making a very different kind of statement by including these specific women. And I want to suggest to you, this is like a, a neon sign. Okay? The attention of everyone reading this would have focused on those names. The men perhaps being a little angry. The women perhaps being curious and maybe hopeful. But he must be trying to tell us something about the ministry of Jesus because this is how Matthew introduces Jesus to us. Who is the Messiah? What is he like? What did he come to accomplish? Somehow these names are meant to give us a clue. And all five of these women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary, they all have something in common. Each of their stories involved some situation that could have been considered shameful. But instead, God provided some form of redemption in the midst of that story. The first woman mentioned is Tamar. And I need to say, first of all, this is not the Tamar from 2 Samuel. We're going to look at her story next Sunday. And there will be children's ministry because it's a very sensitive story. Um, so just to give you a heads up about that. But there are some similarities between these two women. Um, but this is the Tamar from Genesis, okay? And she was probably a Canaanite woman who married Judah's oldest son. 
But God put her first husband to death because he was wicked, which made Tamar a widow. And then Judah appointed another one of his sons to be her kinsman redeemer and take her as a wife, which meant that he was to provide children for her on behalf of the deceased brother. But that son refused to fulfill his duty, and instead he only used her for self-gratification. Now, if you want to know the details of that story, you can go back and read about it in Genesis 38. God then put him to death also for his sin. Then, her father-in-law Judah decided that Tamar was cursed and told her to remain a widow until she died because he didn't want to lose all his sons. But the story takes a turn. Judah ends up mistaking his daughter-in-law for a prostitute. And then he takes advantage of her also. And when Judah finds out that she's pregnant, he assumes it's by some other man and he orders her to be burned alive. But she provided proof that Judah was the father. He spares her life. And she becomes the mother of the child that would become the descendant of Jesus. What a crazy story. And it's easy to read a story like that, which is told in just a few short verses in Genesis, and kind of miss the emotion and the intensity of that situation, right? Just, what would, what would it have felt like to be Tamar? To be tossed around like that and rejected so many times? How might the rest of the women in that culture have viewed you? Your husbands keep dying and your only children are born out of wedlock. I don't imagine that Tamar was family favorite, right? And yet God was not ashamed to be called her God. Both of her sons, the only one mentioned like this, both of her sons are mentioned in Jesus' family tree. Next we have Rahab. Matthew 1 is basically the only place in the Bible where Rahab is not specifically described as the prostitute. Do you remember her story? As the Israelites were crossing over the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, she was the Gentile resident of Jericho who hid the spies of Israel. And because of her kindness, the Lord spared her family from death. And she was allowed to be brought into the covenant community. She was grafted in. And we would consider that by itself to be amazing grace on God's part. But the story goes even further. She's mentioned twice in the New Testament as a faithful servant of God. And that God chose her to be included in the ancestral tree of Jesus. But I imagine that in her day, she experienced also some difficulty being accepted by the Israelites, both because she was a foreigner and because she was a former prostitute. Third, Matthew mentions 
Ruth. If you remember last March, we studied the book of Ruth. Ruth was a woman of Moab, also not a Jew. But if you remember the story, she married a man from Bethlehem who died along with his father and his brother, meaning she had no one immediate to take her as a wife. She was a widow. She had no husband. She had no heir. And so the story tells us that she abandoned her own culture, her own people, to follow her mother-in-law back to Judah, where she finds a man named Boaz, who happened to be a close relative of her deceased husband. Boaz fulfilled the role of kinsman redeemer and took Ruth as his wife in a stunning act of grace, somewhat scandalous. And now we've got our third Gentile woman included in the family history of Jesus Christ. And then Matthew tells us about Bathsheba. Her name is not actually given in the genealogy. It just simply says Uriah's wife, which I think is intentionally meant to remind the readers that she was married to another man before David had that man killed. And we just read about her story two weeks ago. She was the object of a king's lust. She had to watch her first child die because of David's sin. And I cannot imagine the hurt in her life as a result of all this. And the questions she must have been asking, even of God. Of course, she had no idea that her next child would be an ancestor of the king of kings. Now, I want you to remember, David had many wives and many children, but God chose Bathsheba, the one most wronged by David, to carry the seed of Christ. And finally, we have Mary, the mother of Jesus. Joseph is mentioned, but of course Joseph was only the father of Jesus in a legal sense. Mary was a virgin when she conceived and gave birth to the Messiah. And because of that, we tend to think of Mary as pure and innocent, and some religious traditions even venerate her. But I want you to put yourself in her shoes for a moment. Mary, of course, knew the truth about how she became pregnant. But imagine trying to explain that to your fiancé. And Joseph at first did not believe her. And he drew the natural conclusion that some other man had been with his fiance, And he intended to divorce her quietly. Which was, if you know the story, it was the kind approach. It was actually a very compassionate way to deal with the situation. Because Joseph had the legal right to have her publicly disgraced. And in the old days, she could have been stoned. But an angel appeared to Joseph as well, explained the situation that, of course, changes his mind. And Mary was spared of shame that she had not earned. And Jesus was then born to legal parents. 
Now, if you look at the stories of these five women, all side by side, we have to ask the question, why would Matthew want to include these women knowing that they would become the obvious focus of the genealogy and that this was his way to introduce Jesus to us when he could have easily just left them out and just kind of focused on David and Abraham. Why does he do this? Because remember, Matthew's gospel is trying to convince Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah that their whole religion is about. How does adding these women help him make that case? What is God saying to us by having these names included in Jesus' family tree? I think it reveals to us very pointedly the faithfulness and grace of God to unexpected people. In other words, I want to suggest to you that Matthew is intentionally sneaking the gospel into the opening words of his manuscript. I'm not just going to tell you who Jesus is by telling you who He came from. I'm going to tell you who Jesus is by telling you who He came for. Because He came for His ancestors as much as He came for the future brothers and sisters of Christ. Jesus came to save His people from shame and rejection, among lots of other things. And what do we find in the stories of these women? That they were victims of unfaithfulness. They were disgraced and cast aside. They were all five in need of redemption. And these are the people that Christ Jesus came for, Matthew's telling us. These are the ones that He chooses to be involved with. And as the Jews raise their eyebrows at the inclusions of those names... They're forced to deal with that. Of course, this applies to men and women. The men in that list were far from spotless. They also needed redemption. He came for them as much as He came for the women. And yet, I do think there is a special message of grace here, in particular, for women with painful memories. And I believe that because Matthew intentionally included the women with hard stories and not the women whom we might expect him to include. And the simple explanation is God sees. He knows. Because throughout human history, this is not a surprise to anyone in this room that I'm going to say this. Throughout human history, women have been treated as less valuable than men by culture after culture. Some more than others, perhaps, but there have been historically less options for women than men when it comes to the kind of circumstances surrounding the lives of the women whom Matthew mentions. And our culture is no different. Women are still being objectified by the media that we consume every day. And in some ways, it's worse than it's ever been, right? 
You know, it, it is still true today that a promiscuous man is more acceptable in our culture than a promiscuous woman. And that's not some kind of political statement. It's just an observation. And that's just scratching the surface. By far, the people who are victims of violent and sexual crimes are women. By far. And statistically speaking, there are almost certainly people in this room who have been victims of terrible things. And I almost didn't even want to mention that in a public sermon because I can't imagine the hurt that you're experiencing even having it brought up right now. Because even as the victim, not responsible for those crimes in any way, you have felt rejected, violated, and ashamed. And even if that's not your story, you're living in a culture that objectifies women and that is sinful and that is wrong. And we are all, every single one of us, affected by it. And I just want you to know that God sees it. And He grieves it. And He is absolutely doing something about it. In giving us this list at the beginning of His Gospel, Matthew is confirming the legitimacy of Jesus as Messiah not just as the royal heir to David's throne. He is that. But he's also showing us the legitimacy of Jesus as the Messiah in the sense that his incarnation is for the hurting people of this world. Whatever rejection, whatever pain you may have felt in this life, whatever you may have in common with these specific women you can be sure that God understands that your story matters to Him. He knows your pain. He is not ashamed to be called your God. Just as He was not ashamed to be called the God of Tamar, the God of Rahab, the God of Ruth, and the God of Bathsheba. He wanted them in His family. Jesus is the only one who's ever been able to pick His own family. And He wanted them. Not hidden. Not off to the side. Big, bold print. They belong to Me. These are my sisters. These are my daughters. And he went to great lengths to get them into his family. And the same is true of all the people that Jesus Christ came to redeem. And the best part is that God does not wait for us to come to him. He came to us. He came into history born by natural birth in order to secure for himself a family. And he picked a bunch of people that we wouldn't pick. But what I want us to consider this morning, and I want you to be honest with yourself about this, in what ways are we being affected by 
the sinful culture around us? Have we perpetuated the hurt that some have felt with further rejection? Or have we reached out to them with a hand of grace? How might we react or welcome? How might we welcome a Rahab or a Bathsheba into our church family? How would we respond if we found out that somebody's story was much different than our own? How patient are we with people whose stories we may not understand? Do we move toward people with difficult pasts or away from them? But I also want to speak to those with difficult pasts in this room. Have you, have you allowed those insecurities, as powerful as those realities may be, have you allowed those things to suppress the reality of God's love for you? In other words, do you think that your mess is too big for God to clean up? Do you think that it's just too good to be true? Or is it possible that you become so comfortable playing the role of the victim that you don't want to be redeemed from that mess? And I would urge you to see that this is this is real. He is calling you into His family. He is calling you daughter. He's calling you son. You know, the world around us believes, this is important for me to say, I added it this morning because it was like, this needs to be said. The world around us believes that the solution to this problem is to completely erase the distinctions between men and women. But I want you to understand, biblically speaking, what that does is it devalues us all. Because God intentionally created us with differences. He created us male and female. He did not make a mistake. We are equal in value in the eyes of God. But we are also uniquely created by God. Male and female. The world's solution to this problem will only cause more problems. God's solution is the gospel. Making its way into our hearts and into our lives. Brothers and sisters, all of us are more sinful than we think we are but we are also more loved than we could ever imagine if we belong to Jesus Christ. God did not make a mistake when He offered you the blood of His only Son. He wanted you in His family just like He wanted those women in His family. Their stories matter, and so does your story. He will never use you or abuse you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. We 
the church are described more than once in the scriptures as the bride of Christ. And one day the Bible says that a great multitude, countless multitude of God's people will gather together and they will be shouting these words. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. John says it was granted us to wear white. Not because we earned it. Not because our deeds were righteous. Not because we lived a life of purity. But because God has declared us righteous in union with our groom, Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to You in the midst of a a world and a culture that is extremely extremely ravaged and broken by sin. We are so quick to devalue those who are made in Your image. We can be so selfish and so violent and so immoral in the way we view one another. In the way we take advantage of one another. And some in this room have experienced deep And lasting hurt. Father, You're the only one that can heal that. So we pray Your Spirit to meet us where we are. Draw us near to Christ. Where we find acceptance. Where we find righteousness. Where we find a hope and a future and a family. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.